0: you are all, all dead.
1: David Cullen Bain, the Dunedin man found guilty of murdering his family, appeared to go into a state of shock on hearing the guilty verdict.
2: He started saying black hands,
1: that they were taking them away. Black hands. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs>
3: want to assure you. I did not kill my family. After shooting his wife and three children in a murderous rampage, 58-year-old Robin Bain felt he had no option but to take his own life. He had spared the one person who deserved to stay, his son David. Robin roughly wiped away the obvious blood on his hands put his bloody clothes in the laundry basket downstairs, donned some warm but tatty gear, including his old woolly hat, typed a very brief suicide note on the computer, and then settled down in the dark to shoot himself. Holding the rifle silencer against his left temple, he reached down and pulled the trigger, falling back onto the carpet. Death was instantaneous. That's part of the scenario on which the innocence of David Bain depends. I'm journalist Martin Van Bainen and this is a podcast series on New Zealand's most notorious murder case which started on June the 20th 1994 when five members of the Bain family were shot in their home in Dunedin. Only the eldest child David, then 22, survived. Initially, there seemed no doubt the gunman was David's father Robin, but within a week David was arrested. He was convicted of the murders in 1995 but acquitted after a second trial in 2009 now lives in Christchurch with his wife and child. This episode looks at the question of whether Robin Bain took his own life by shooting himself. As mentioned, Robin was found dead in the lounge of the house. He was lying on the carpet, mostly on his back with the rifle forming a right angle with his legs. He had one bullet wound in his left temple. Curiously, the rifle's 10-shot magazine, containing three cartridges, stood on its narrow side just by his right hand a five-shot magazine containing two bullets was in the rifle and a round was in the rifle's chamber. Robin lay near some green velvet curtains which screened off a sunroom turned into the family computer room. The computer was on and on the screen was the message, sorry you are the only one who deserved to stay. The rifle used in the shootings was a 0.22 semi-automatic Winchester. David got his firearms license in November 1990 and bought the rifle privately in February 1993. It came fitted with a telescopic sight. Robin helped David sight the rifle at a farm near the Tyree Beach School, where he was the principal. He probably picked up the spent shells afterwards, and as a man who found it difficult to throw anything away, put them in his caravan, where the police would later find them. The defence would say the shells showed Robin was using David's rifle without David knowing. David then bought and fitted a Silent Kill brand silencer made by Silent Enterprises in Nelson. silencer was useful when shooting rabbits because it muffled the sound of shots enough to avoid scaring other rabbits away. It fitted over the muzzle of the rifle and was secured with a screw-up clamp. The bullets for the rifle had to be loaded into a magazine which was then inserted in the bottom of the rifle. Cocking the rifle activated a mechanism which pushed the top bullet in the magazine into the chamber. As each bullet was fired, the mechanism automatically extracted the shell and ejected it through a port on the right side of the rifle. Mostly the shells were ejected towards the shooter's right shoulder to a distance of about one and a half metres. Where the shells landed gave some indication of the position of the shooter, although empty shells can bounce off other objects and be nudged along the floor. David had two magazines for the rifle. The rifle worked better with its five-shot magazine. The 10-shot magazine was faulty and could come apart, spilling its cartridges. The distance between the end of the silencer to the trigger was nearly 800 millimetres, an important measurement, as Robin, if he took his own life, had to have been able to point the rifle at his head and still reach the trigger. The bullet which killed Robin hit him in the upper edge of his left temple and went diagonally across his brain, about parallel with the floor. So those are the bare facts but they don't tell us whether Robin killed himself or not. Here's why. It's sometimes difficult to distinguish between a firearm suicide and a firearm murder. We've all seen movies where the murderer attempts to make it look like the death was self-inflicted. In the Bain case, the prosecution needed to cancel out any reasonable possibility that Robin Bain had taken his own life. If the jury thought Robin may well have killed himself, they had to acquit David. The prosecution began by arguing the most likely scenario To explain the evidence was that David hid behind the green curtains shielding the computer alcove and waited for Robin to come into the room from his caravan where he slept. David then poked the rifle through the curtain and shot Robin, who may have been kneeling or crouching in meditation, in the left temple at point-blank range. Good evidence suggested Robin had a habit of going into the lounge first thing in the morning to pray or meditate. It's also possible David was in the computer alcove and called his father in when he came into the house from the caravan where he slept. A spent shell was found on the floor of the computer alcove, suggesting David had shot Robin from that area as how else would the shell have found its way to that side of the curtains. Robin's blood and brain tissue was found on the lower part of the green curtains facing the lounge side. If Robin had shot himself on the lounge side of the curtains, As the defence claimed, it had to explain how the ejected shell had ended up on the other side of the closed drapes. Some evidence suggested the shell could have gone through a gap in the curtains or was nudged under the curtains with a foot. We know there was a gap in the curtains because when police first arrived at Every Street, an officer looked through from the outside of the house into the lounge to see Robin's hand through a gap in the curtains. ESR scientist Kevin Walsh told David's second trial.
1: Well, the question I was specifically tasked with was um, I was informed that uh, a fired cartridge case had been found um, on the other side, on the floor on the other side of the curtains. um, Whereas the rifle, as seen there, is on uh, what I would call the lounge side of the curtains. Um, So I was asked to determine whether it was possible. Uh, for a cartridge with a rifle positioned approximately where it lay, um, but in an unknown angle or um, location specifically, uh, whether it was possible for a cartridge case to be ejected um, such that it ended up uh, on the other side of the curtains. Um, in my opinion, the most likely um, Scenario would be that uh, with the firearm on, on the lounge side of the curtains, would be that the cartridge case is more likely to have struck the curtain and fallen to the floor in front of the curtain. Uh, however, from my test firing experiments, it is possible for either the cartridge case to be ejected through a small gap uh, between the curtains, or for it to be ejected under the, and bounce under the curtains.
3: But surely forensics could show that Robin did not have a silencer hard against his head when he died meaning he was shot from a distance. If that could be proved, it became much harder to accept Robin had killed himself because he would not have been able to reach the trigger. Unfortunately, it wasn't that simple. The prosecution couldn't say just how close the end of the rifle was to Robin's head when David fired the shot, but it maintained the muzzle was not in contact with Robin's head. To support that scenario, the prosecution relied on a wealth of test-firing evidence that showed Robin's wound most closely resembled The more distant shots in the demonstrations. The defence however maintained Robin's head wound categorically showed the end of the silencer was hard against his head which backed up the suicide theory. But even if the defence succeeded in showing the silencer had been held against Robin's head that was not necessarily fatal to the Crown case. David could have pressed the muzzle of the silencer against his father's head and pressed the trigger before Robin knew what was happening. Or he could have confronted his father and forced him into a position to be shot.
2: Today on Newsable, we go inside the courtroom where Erin Patterson pleaded not
3: guilty to murder charges related to that infamous Beef Wellington lunch. Plus, why it's a good time to be a first home buyer, and the dis-battle between Kendrick Lamar and Drake. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your
2: podcasts.
3: So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. In David's second trial, the issue of the bullet wound became a battle of the experts, with neither side conceding the possibility they could be wrong. In this difficult area of forensic science, it seemed the experts just joined the dots in different ways to reach different conclusions. The debate could possibly have been avoided if the post-mortem pathologist Alex Dempster had removed the skin around the wound for testing. Dempster's evidence would be crucial. He was the only pathologist to have seen Robin's head wound in the flesh, and his conclusion was that the wound was a contact wound. His view carried the most weight, a point hammered by David's lawyers, who were not always so keen to accept Dempster's other conclusions. Dempster, for instance, thought that Robin did not commit suicide. In that, he was supported by some other factors which we look at now. Robin was right-handed, so the shot to the left temple was unusual, to say the least. A study in the United States reviewing suicides by firearms over 15 years found that where the deceased used a rifle of the total shots, 48 were to the right temple and 7 to the left temple. The other gruesome statistics were mouth 51, forehead 33, under chin 19, back of head 8, chest 33, abdomen 4, and other places 7. In other words, the study found that people who shot themselves with a rifle shot themselves in the back of the head more often than they did in the left temple. Defence expert Robert Chapman a Home Office pathologist who performed the autopsy on Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed in 1997, gave the defence some comfort around the shot to the left temple as opposed to other sites. He told David's second trial,
2: In your experience, where persons are intent on committing suicide, um, is there anything usual or unusual in the means they they go about doing
0: it? All I can really say, given my experience of examining Large numbers of people who have taken their own lives is that they will often choose quite unusual and quite unpredictable ways in which to kill themselves. There's no way in which one can sort of understand the thought process that seems to have
3: gone into this. Another odd detail was that none of Robin's blood was found on the rifle. If he was holding the muzzle up to his temple, it seemed likely some of his blood would have fallen back on the rifle, but none was found in the testing done. Neither were his fingerprints detected anywhere on the rifle or silencer. Research shows that gunshot suicide victims do not always leave their fingerprints on the firearm, but if Robin was the shooter that morning, he had done a lot more with the rifle than shoot himself. Robin's pathology also offered some clues to whether he committed suicide. His stomach was virtually empty and his bladder contained about one and a half cups of dark, relatively concentrated urine, a normal overnight collection and the amount an individual would pass on getting up in the morning. It seemed a simple point to which everyone could relate. When most men of his age go straight to the toilet when getting up, Robin, if he was the killer, had shot his family and himself on a full bladder. Grant Russell, a consultant urologist called by the defence, said nothing could be concluded from Robin's bladder. For many people, one and a half cups would not create urgency. And some men could urinate and still retain that amount in the bladder, he said. Adrenaline also increased a person's ability to store urine, Russell said. But another odd thing. If Robin was extremely upset when he went to bed, it was strange he appeared to have had a settled night and even gone to bed with a hot water bottle. Also puzzling was the 10-shot magazine standing on its edge next to Robin's right hand. It could have been placed there by either Robin or David, but if it was Robin, it was strange he should collapse after shooting himself with his right hand ending up exactly next to the upright magazine. Could David, a thespian of many years standing, have planted it in a bit of creative staging? Another difficulty for the defence was the angle of the shot through Robin's head. It suggested Robin had held the rifle in a very clumsy way to deliver the shot. The pathologist Alex Dempster believed the angle of the shot across Robin's head was the strongest factor showing Robin had been shot by someone else. This, however, was countered by the defence expert Philip Boyce, who produced various scenarios showing how Robin could have shot himself without much difficulty. Here he is at David's second trial.
1: I used the original exhibits uh, documents, which showed that the angle was 45 degrees. And simply by placing the, the skull cap on the head, it's quite straightforward to use a protractor and show that it's 45 degrees angle. And you used a
2: protractor to make sure that everything
1: was correct. I did, yes. And as a
2: result of carrying out those tests, what did you
3: conclude?
1: I concluded that a person could quite easily uh, shoot themselves with the rifle in various poses.
3: Dr John Manlove, a forensic scientist from Oxfordshire, was called to give an opinion on Robin's position when he was shot. He had looked at the bloodstains on the right leg of Robin's tracksuit pants, which showed stains above and below the knee, travelling in different directions. The blood spots were consistent, with Robin having a foot on a red chair near the curtains with his knee upwards, he said. Now, could
2: you explain to the court, please, what the significance is of the bent
0: right knee?
1: Well, if if the bloodstains originated at the same time, then it could explain (coughs) as to why they were travelling in different directions, both up and down um, the leg of the track bands. And could you explain that in slightly more
2: detail? Why would you have... The blood in
1: different um, well if, if the knee is bent and the blood, blood is coming from a, a particular area toward towards that knee it's uh, going to impact both above and below the knee. The knee is in a particular position the blood is originating from a particular area it can appear um, misleading that there are in fact two different sources of the blood whereas in fact it's come from one
3: source. However, if that was correct it was peculiar, that not a spot of blood was found on the red chair. It may have been covered by the green curtain, but if that was the case, who put the curtain back to hang normally? Robin could also have had his leg bent in a number of scenarios in which David was the shooter. Now let's look again at the silencer on the rifle. ESR scientist Peter Henschel's notes recorded that blood was found on the silencer, extensive smearing and traces of blood were also found inside the barrel, positive. He didn't open up the silencer, so must have been referring to only the surfaces of it that could be seen. The silencer on the Bane rifle is a bit like a tin can. At the end of the silencer is a rim, sitting a bit higher than the flat surface of the end of the silencer. The silencer works like this. The bullet and associated gases come out of the end of the rifle barrel and enter the chamber of the silencer, which has a series of baffles. The gas expands in the silencer to muffle the noise, and the bullet carries on out of the hole in the silencer. Henschel was probably referring in his notes to blood inside the rim of the silencer on the flat surface. I did contact him to ask, but he couldn't recall. Scientists did not remove the silencer from the rifle, and it was never pulled apart to see what was inside. One of the defence witnesses, Peter Ross, a scientist from Melbourne, raised the possibility of blood being sucked into the silencer and even the barrel with a close contact shot. In his evidence, he talked about an effect where gases passing out of the barrel could suck blood back into the muzzle or silencer.
0: I don't know whether the, the inside of the, the muzzle of the silencer was examined to see whether there had been sucked back of blood, which is uh, when, when a, uh, a firearm, whether it's got a silencer or not, is placed in hard contact um, with, with a, um, a, a body, a, a head. The gases, the bullet issues from the, the muzzle, the gases follow. There is an immediate, as the gas, gases pass out of the muzzle, there is a vacuum effect as the gases pass out and that will suck in uh, blood into the, the muzzle. The same effect will occur with the, uh, with the silencer, it may be slightly less, but that examination would have been able to establish very clearly whether any of the shots were of that nature. It has to be effectively in contact to get any significant uh, vacuum effect, Other- otherwise the, the, the air gap is, is, is broken and you, you don't get the, uh, the, the suck back.
3: Trial Judge Justice Graham Pankhurst, picked up on the point.
0: Mr Ross, I take it that
2: um, <clears throat> if there's blood in the barrel, it would have to be from the
0: last firing of the rifle that it was vacuumed in. It is far more likely, sir, because of the, um, the, the, the movement of the gases. The, the bullet um, is, is designed that it fits very, very snugly Uh, into the the barrel. So any biological material would largely be removed. So it really comes down to the the final shot.
3: As mentioned, it seemed like a strong argument for the defence position that the wound was a contact shot. As the last shot would have cleaned out any previous blood on the barrel, the blood had to be Robin's. And it could only have got there with a hard contact shot. David's lawyer, Michael Reed QC, gave the suckback theory a hard push in his closing.
2: So the last shot to Robin Lane had to be the last one, and it had to be a close contact shot because it's the only way the blood gets up the parable and stays there.
3: Not necessarily. It's strange that if Reed was so sure of his ground on the suckback argument, he did not ask Henschel about it in his extensive cross examination of the scientist during David's second trial. Also, the end of the barrel was about 70 millimetres back from the end of the silencer, and if suckback occurred, it would not have reached the barrel. But Robin had placed the silencer hard against his head for the vacuum effect to have taken place the wound should also have shown a wider and neater circumference, inside which was soot and other matter. In other words, the wound should have looked quite different to the sooting and burning scene. The blood inside the rim of the silencer was not surprising given the number of close headshots in the murders. Both Stephen and Larniette were shot through the top of the head. Blood from the outside surfaces of the silencer, including blood from either end of it, sampled and tested in 1994, 1997 and 2003. None of the tests showed the blood was Robbins. David's supporters now mention the silencer blood as a major factor pointing to David's innocence. As mentioned, the silencer has never been opened. If it was and contained no blood, or blood other than Robbins, then this vexed question could be resolved for good. Curiously, the defence have made no attempt since the trial to have the silencer tested. But remember, a close shot does not mean David was not the shooter. As mentioned earlier, David could have held the silencer against Robin's head. The defence then rely on the features of Robin's head wound, the suckback theory and the practicality of Robin shooting himself to support the suicide theory. At the second trial, they didn't stop there. Reed also tried to capitalise on another aspect of the scene. This was a live bullet found on the floor beside Robin's body. The bullet casing had a dent and some scratches, which the defence expert Philip Boyce suggested had occurred through a misfeed. That means the cartridge was scratched or damaged when the rifle's mechanism failed to push it into the chamber. Clearing the misfeed would have taken several seconds and created a fair amount of noise. This showed that David could not have been the killer, Reed said, because if the rifle had jammed, When David was supposed to have been behind the curtain, pointing the gun at his father's head, Robin would have heard the noise of David clearing the bullet and taken evasive action. Reed told the jury in his closing address that Robin must have raised the rifle to his head and pulled the trigger, only to have the rifle jam. He then had to remove the bullet before he could shoot himself successfully. The bullet on the floor was therefore the discarded bullet.
2: David couldn't have shot his father with a misfire. It's nonsense. The father tragically, obviously, tries to shoot himself. The horror of it, it doesn't work. He has to clear it and then shoot himself. What a terrible thing. That's clearly what happened.
3: However, Reed's scenario had several problems. The round on the floor had the same markings as the bullet in the chamber, which obviously had not misfed. Other bullets that had clearly jammed were found in some of the other rooms and had different defects to the bullet on the floor. In addition, you will remember the rifle automatically fed in a new bullet after one was fired. That's when the jam occurs. So if Robin was the shooter, he would have realised the bullet had jammed after the previous shot. Those then were the main defence arguments on the suicide issue at David's second trial, but we now turn to a development four years later. The defence camp thought it had another game changer on the suicide issue in 2013. The revelation, covered by a media blitz, was promoted as a startling discovery. A Bain supporter, looking at photographs of Robin's right thumb, had suddenly seen two dark lines on the thumb, apparently missed by all the experts. A shooter himself, the Observer said, The marks were just like the marks left on his thumb when he loaded bullets into the magazine of his rifle. Was this then finally the vital bit of evidence tying Robin to the shooting that the defence had been looking for? The media and the Bain camp certainly seemed to think it was and the half-tested possibility was promoted as a certainty. David's lawyer Michael Reed was quoted as demanding an immediate pardon for David on the strength of the new information. David's advocates claimed the marks showed Robin had rubbed soot off the magazine's top edges as he was loading the bullets and left two telltale lines on his right thumb and another on his right forefinger before he took his own life. Television coverage showed various people loading the magazine with bullets and then having their thumbs photographed. A chart showed the similarity between the marks left on the tester's thumbs and those shown on Robin's. The marks were definitely similar, but they weren't the same. As a quick inspection, even by a lay person, would have shown. The marks on the tester's thumbs were parallel, but those on Robin's thumb were not. They differed in colour and width. In the context of the case, the marks did not make a lot of sense either. Robin needed to have loaded a number of bullets if he was the shooter, but if the so-called tracks on his thumb were magazine marks, how come there was only one track? And if he loaded five bullets into the magazine shortly before killing himself, surely some lead marks from the bullets would be present as well. Both the ESR and the National Fingerprint section of the police provided detailed reports essentially debunking the defence claims about the marks. Predictably the reports were attacked as the police whitewash but they were publicly released with the experts reputations at stake. The ESR's Kevin Walsh concluded the marks on Robin's thumb had a reddish colour while the marks on the testers were dark grey or black. He said the lines on Robin's thumb were not parallel and one had a curve at one end. They were also shorter than the marks seen in the demonstration and were in a place away from where loading marks were usually located. Walsh said that although the marks could have resulted as claimed, considerable doubt existed. And I'm quoting him here that the shape, dimensions, and colour of the marks on Mr. Bain's thumb are consistent with marks made as a result of loading a cartridge into a magazine, end of quote. The police fingerprint section did its own analysis to determine a different question. It looked at whether the marks observed on Robin's thumb were actually the result of superficial damage to the skin. Enhanced photographs of the marks were obtained and the section also had access to fingerprints taken from Robin Bain's corpse by Christchurch fingerprint technician Kim Jones on June 22, 1994 that is two days after the shootings. The prints were taken by inking the fingers and then placing the fingers onto cut-out pieces of fingerprint form which had been placed in a fingerprint spoon. The method gave a rolled impression that captured the fingerprint detail towards the lateral edges of the fingerprint. Comparing the photographs and the prints taken by Jones, the experts said they could clearly see a match between the marks and breaks in the lines of the prints. They concluded, again I quote, these corresponding features are strongly indicative that marks present on the right thumb and forefinger of Robin Bain as seen in Operation who he has seen photographs are the result of minor superficial damage to the skin surface. In other words, Robin had got a couple of little cuts on his thumb and forefinger. The weekend before the shootings he had been fixing spouting along one side of the house which would explain the marks. Where does all this leave us? Clearly, Robin committing suicide cannot be ruled out completely. The question, though, is really what is most likely. In the next episode, we ask some questions about David's reliability. I'm Martin Van Bynen. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a joint stuff in tandem studios production, written and presented by Martin Van Beynen, Audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson and produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman.